uh, as well. Mark chapter seven, or sorry, Mark chapter six, just looking at one verse, verse 52 says, for they still, speaking of the disciples, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. And then jump ahead to chapter eight, look at verse 18 and verse 21. Again, speaking to the disciples here, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? And then in verse 21, Jesus says, don't you understand yet? He asked them. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we have to gather corporately to worship you, our Lord, our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I just pray now, God, in these next few minutes as we gather around your word, help us, God, to begin to understand, to grasp, to to learn and to have our eyes open and our hearts opened to your word this morning. I pray, Jesus, that you would convict us as we spend time in your word. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. And I pray that you would help me to declare and to speak your word with incredible boldness, with simplicity and with clarity this morning. God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together today. And I do pray, Lord, even as we will spend time around this subject matter of spiritual blindness, I pray all across this room today that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see, to hear, and to understand, Lord, as you do. Give us your perspective. Give us your vision, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in an essay titled Love in Action gleans two very important lessons from Luke's account of Jesus on the cross. More specifically, the expression of forgiveness that Jesus extended to the crowd that was present that day. In this essay, King explains that Jesus' prayer of forgiveness is, quote, an expression of Jesus' awareness of man's intellectual and spiritual blindness. Jesus said, they know not what they do. Dr. Martin Luther King ended by stating this. He said, blindness was their trouble. Enlightenment was their need. Our text this morning and really various narratives throughout the gospel accounts certainly underscore this truth, that blindness really is our trouble even today in the 21st century, not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness, our inability to see and to grasp and to understand what God sees and what God understands. If we carefully examine the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation in light of its context, we will see that spiritual blindness was even prominent and certainly prominent during Jesus's ministry on earth. If you were to explore and unpack the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would see very clearly throughout the gospels that Jesus came in contact with people, disciples, Pharisees, crowds, people who were spiritually blind to the truth that was right there in front of them. 
And we can be critical, we can be hard of those disciples or those Pharisees, and we can say, man, why, how did they not grasp what was right there in front of them? But the reality is we aren't that much different when it comes to spiritual blindness. I want to explore just for a few minutes, looking really at, at Mark chapter 8 and the, the several narratives that unfold and explore the problem of spiritual blindness. I want to look at the possibility that is available to you, to me, of regaining spiritual sight and really ending our time together looking at the pathway to godly vision. How many this morning would just simply say, my desire is to have God vision? How many would say, that's, that's the desire of my heart today? I want to see things from God's lens or from God's perspective and not my own. And, and we just can't put the Bible underneath our pillows at night and hope by osmosis that all of a sudden we will wake up the next morning and our vision will be healed from a spiritual standpoint and we will see from God's perspective. That's not how it works. We're going to see a little bit more clearly how it unfolds here in our narrative today in Mark chapter 8. I want to begin by talking just simply about the problem. And the problem simply was this, the people were spiritually impaired. They were spiritually impaired from a, per, from a vision perspective, but also from a hearing perspective. Look again at our text in Mark chapter 8, and listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. He says this, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? And then in verse 21 again, he ends really this section by saying, don't you understand just Yet, uh, I'm going to give you the context of these words of Jesus because it'll make a little bit more sense here looking at the whole narrative. But I want to begin by talking about really Jesus's closest companions, his disciples, those who spent a lot of time with Jesus in the three years that he was ministering here on earth. The disciples, they saw things that, that the crowd often was not allowed to see. They heard things, teachings of Jesus that oftentimes the crowd did not have the, the ability or the access to, but the disciples heard and saw, yet they were still spiritually blind to the truth that was right in front of them. His, his disciples, his closest companions, they were spiritually blind. Reverend Kyle Norman, regarding spiritual blindness, defines it as this. It is about being unable to recognize the power of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that that is pretty clear when it comes to the disciples, the Pharisees, and even the crowds in the gospel accounts. Want to look at our story. Go to, if you have your Bibles opened, um, look at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. I do want to read this now because here's the context for what Jesus asked his disciples regarding their vision and regarding their hearing and their inability to understand. Let's look at the text, Mark chapter eight. It's not up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It says, about this time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are, you, or how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out there in the wilderness? This sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? We have a familiar story that is unfolding here. We've heard about this previously. 
Verse five, Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves. He thanked God for them. He broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So disciples also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food and there were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into the boat with his disciples and he crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, I want to just kind of unpack this story because this really gives us a glimpse into the spiritual blindness of the disciples and their inability to understand truth that was right in front of them. Now, as I read this story, at least at first glance, from a human perspective, I read this story and I say, how in the world, how in the world can these disciples who had just witnessed not long before the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, remember the story, um, again, Jesus was teaching, the people were hungry, the disciples wanted to send them away, and Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to feed them. And the disciples looked at Jesus, how are we, how are we going to even have enough money or, or food to find to feed this many people? Let's just send them back to their towns, to their villages to find food for themselves. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. And if you remember the story of the 5,000, there were five loaves of bread, two fish. He took the five loaves. He took the two fish. He gave thanks to heaven, broke it. And remember the 5,000 men plus women and children were fed and they were fully satisfied. And there were 12 basketfuls left over. But now we move into this story and it's not that much different. Few different nuances. There's 4,000 people instead of 5,000. The location is different. Um, instead of being a predominantly Jewish area, now Jesus is ministering in a predominantly Gentile region. There are Jews that are present, but he's ministering to a different group of people here. And, and certainly the, the number of loaves present are different. There's seven loaves that they find this time, and it doesn't speak a whole lot about it. It does, but, but not as much about the number of fish that were present. It was the focus of the seven loaves. And we see here that they failed again to recognize the significance of the feeding miracle. I, I mean, I, I can understand. Let's just put ourselves for a minute in the shoes of the disciples. I can understand maybe the first time. They've not witnessed the multiplication of food uh, in such great amounts before. I mean, that was a significant miracle. So I can, I can understand not getting it the first time. But now they've come to a very similar situation. The only thing that's different is and they're, they're in a different region. The disciples are still the same disciples that are present. But when Jesus says to them, I want you to feed them, I want you to supply food for them, they, once again, they fail to grasp, how are we to do that? So again, from a human perspective, I, I step back and how in the world could they forget so quickly? Any of you in here forget things quickly? I have to write everything down. <laughs> um, if I don't write it down tomorrow, I will forget it. And, and so maybe that was the issue with them. Maybe they didn't write it down and, and, and they, you know, a few days later, or a few weeks later, they forgot what had occurred. But for whatever reason, the disciples missed it. They forgot. After both feedings, the 5,000 and the 4,000, their failure to comprehend the significance of the event was stressed by Jesus. Look at Mark 6 again, verse 52. This is after the feeding of the 5,000, all right? This is where we began this morning, and, and they missed it. They misunderstood the significance of the miracle, and look at what Jesus said to them, for they, didn't, for they still didn't understand 
the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Fast forward just a little bit to the feeding of the 4,000. Similar events, different context, same situation. I want you to feed them. and They didn't grasp the significance. And look at what Jesus says after the feeding of the, the 4,000. Here's what Jesus says. Why are you arguing? Because here's what happens. They get on a boat now and they're going back across the sea. And Jesus looks at them. Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? 12, they said. When I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? Their ears were deaf to the teaching of Jesus. And their eyes were certainly blind to his glory. Now, moving on in this text, what's very interesting is when they get on the boats, so they had just, they've witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. They, they watched Jesus take five loaves of bread and multiply it enough to feed 5,000 men, women, and children and have several basketfuls left over. And now they've witnessed the feeding of 4,000 men plus women and children, seven loaves of bread that had been multiplied, distributed. The people were satisfied and there were basketfuls left over. Now they get onto this boat. I want you to see the irony of what happens here. They get onto this boat now to go across to the other side of the sea. And when they get on the boat, the disciples start complaining and arguing with one another because they forgot to bring bread along for the journey. There were basketfuls left over and they get on and they start making their way across the sea and they were arguing with one another because they forgot bread for the journey. We read it in Mark 8, 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boats. Now, the irony of this complaint, and, and Scripture doesn't really speak to this, but this is just kind of a sidebar this morning. They're arguing about having no bread with them in the boat. It says they only had one loaf with them. Now, whether or not this was the case, I think this is interesting to consider this morning. The reality is, remember, Jesus is in the boat with them. They're arguing about having no bread. And the irony in that complaint is Jesus is who? Jesus is the bread of life. And, and so whether or not it was a physical loaf that they had with them or, or just a reference to the fact that the one loaf that was present was Jesus Christ himself, and yet they were blinded to the truth that Jesus, the bread of life, was in their midst. And they're sitting here arguing with one another. We have no bread to eat. We, we have nothing to fill our bellies. And they just saw and experienced this incredible miracle. And once again, they failed to grasp the truth that Jesus Christ himself was and is the bread of life, and Jesus was in their midst. They were spiritually blind. I mean, there was nobody closer to Jesus than the disciples. They walked with him. They saw miracles that nobody else saw. They heard teachings that no one else had the privilege to hear, and yet they were still spiritually blind to the truth that Jesus Christ, the bread of life, he was physically in their presence. They were spiritually blind to the truth. Their blindness kept them from seeing Jesus as Messiah and as Lord. 
Some of us spend way too much time searching for something more to satisfy our hearts. And this is exactly what the disciples were doing on the boat. They were looking for something physical to satisfy their hunger. And sometimes as human beings, we do the same thing. We search for something more to satisfy our hearts when all we really need is already in our presence and is the person of Jesus Christ, the bread of life that will truly satisfy our hearts, our souls for all eternity. But for whatever reason, we miss it because we too, like the disciples, are spiritually blind and we need eyes to be open. We need ears to be open so we can see and hear and understand the truth that is right in front of us, that Jesus Christ is more than enough and he is already in our midst. Not only did the disciples, though, miss it, not only were they spiritually blind, but we also know the Pharisees. They too were spiritually blind to this truth. What's interesting about the Pharisees, we give them a bad rap and, and certainly they were very legalistic in their ways. But from the perspective of, of spiritual things, the Pharisees were those who we would seem least likely to suffer from spiritual blindness, right? But they were blind. When you think about it, the Pharisees knew the law better than anybody else. They could quote to you scriptures from the Old Testament. They knew it frontwards and backwards. They understood it. Um, They lived by it. Um, And certainly they didn't have a full revelation of that truth. But the Pharisees, when it came to spiritual matters, they were way ahead of the game than most. I mean, remember Jesus, he called to himself, you know, disciples, he called fishermen, he called tax collectors who really didn't have any previous knowledge or recollection of spiritual things. But the Pharisees, I mean, they spent time, they grew up studying the law. They knew it better than most and and they, they understood or at least knew of the prophecies that spoke about the Messiah and any other religious material. They were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures better than most, yet they lacked the spiritual discernment to know, and this is key, to know that the tokens of the kingdom were visible in the words and in the actions of Jesus Christ. Let's look at uh, Reverend Kyle Norman says this. He says, spiritual sightedness is not about the wealth of religious knowledge, Scripture memorization or an understanding of intricate liturgical rules. Having true, authentic spiritual sight is about seeing and receiving Jesus. Pharisees understood the religious rules. They had scripture, Old Testament scriptures memorized better than anybody else. They understood the intricate liturgical rules better than any other person, but they were unwilling and unable to see and receive Jesus Christ, the bread of life, even in their presence. Their blindness resulted in their faithlessness. Look at Mark chapter eight, also from our text. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 11, it says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him, testing him. They demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit And he said this, why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat and he left them and he crossed to the other side of the lake. Here's what's happening. The Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to provide a tangible sign, tangible proof of God or of Jesus's trustworthiness. Give us something, the Pharisees said, to prove that you, Jesus, are truly of or from God. 
And they miss the fact that every word that came out of Jesus's mouth or every action that came forth from Jesus was indeed proof that this man was truly not just from God, but he was God. Pharisees missed it. They were looking for signs. And remember earlier, earlier, uh, previously in, in Mark chapter three, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus and his actions as being demonic in nature. Everything that Jesus did or said, they were connecting it to some some demon-like power. We read this in Mark 3, verse 22. The teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. And so they didn't view the, the miracles of Jesus or the words of Jesus as being divine in nature. They were tying it back to being demonic in nature. And so here they are, they're asking for signs. Give us something. Give us something to prove your trustworthiness. Give us something to prove that you truly are who you say you are. And and Jesus is saying to them, I'm not going to give you any sign. Every word that comes from my mouth, every action that I do, every interaction that I have with you is proof that I am Jesus Christ, the son of God, not just some good prophet who is teaching. Their spiritual blindness kept them from seeing that the very acts and words from Jesus were divine in nature. This was the very thing Jesus warned his disciples of when he gets on the boat then. So they get onto the boat and they're traveling across to the other side. And Jesus, the very first thing he does is he warns them. He says, beware, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. What's the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod? The yeast, yeast is that which can spread quickly and can disperse in a lot of places, in a very fast manner. It's the disposition to believe only if signs are present in order to compel faith. The Pharisees were demanding a sign, give us something to to cause us to believe. And what Jesus was saying is, giving you myself, my words, and my actions, they are more than enough to prove that I am who I am. Herod himself, later in Luke's gospel, Luke 23, Herod was thrilled when he saw Jesus because Herod was waiting for a sign. Luke 23, verse 8, Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. Pharisees, Herod, they were spiritually blind to the truth that Jesus Christ was indeed Son of God, they were demanding signs. Give us something to prove that you truly are who you say you are. And they missed the very real presence of Jesus right in front of them. Jesus wanted his followers to have a radical faith and a fresh understanding of of him apart from signs. So what does that imply? What does that mean then for us? The church of the 21st century isn't that much different from the disciples or the Pharisees of the first century, we still today, we still struggle with spiritual blindness. We still miss the the reality, the truth of God that is in our very midst. And let me just give you a few examples this morning, and I won't really comment on these other than give these to you today. Number one, while we wait for God to do something big and extraordinary Sometimes we miss God working in the small and mundane areas of our life. 
Now, God certainly can and God certainly does do big and extraordinary things. But if we just sit around waiting for God to do something big before we move or before we respond, we're going to miss that sometimes God is doing small things in the mundane, very normal routine of our life. How many believe that God can do big and extraordinary things? And how many know that sometimes God is intricately involved in the small details of our life as well? And I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful that he is not just the creator of the universe who spoke um, the world into existence out of nothing, but he's also the same God who came to live and have a personal relationship with me. So he is a God, yes, of big and extraordinary things. Sometimes God is working in the small and mundane areas of our life. And let's, let's not be so focused on just one aspect that we miss God even in the small moments. Number two, we sometimes seek praise from others and live to receive all of the attention that sometimes we fail to take our eyes off of self and place them back on God. This was the issue with the disciples and the Pharisees. Remember, the disciples later on, they're going to be arguing, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Am I going to have the best position in God's kingdom? Am I going to, I'm going to be the one that sits on his left and his right. The Pharisees, they do the very same thing. Remember, when they fast, when they pray, when they give, it's all about receiving attention. They want the public to see them and say, wow, look how spiritual they are. And that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for lives of humility. We seek to honor him and praise him, not for self-gratification, but to simply bring honor to him. Number three, we become more interested in rule-keeping and less interested in devotion to God as our primary aim. This is what causes spiritual blindness. When our focus is rule-keeping and less interested in devotion to God, devotion to Yahweh. Number four, we have become distracted by political agendas, social movements, and even other worldly reforms that sometimes our lives crowd out God's agenda. Uh, There's a lot of other agendas out there. There's political agendas, there's social agendas, but if we become so attached and so focused on those, sometimes that will crowd out our ability to see God's agenda, which is most important. We have distanced ourselves from the truth and cut the line of communication off with the divine. And when these things happen, no wonder spiritual blindness plagues our culture today. So then what's the possibility? That's the problem. And sorry, I spent a lot of time on kind of the bad news (laughs) this morning. Um, If you're still with me, come back. Or if you're not with me, come back for just a few moments because I have good news for us this morning. What's the possibility? The possibility is we can receive spiritual understanding. Mark is making clear that spiritual understanding is possible for those who are spiritually blind. And we see this in a very unique narrative. Let's look at Mark chapter 8. Look at at this story. Mark chapter 8. I want to read this to you, beginning in verse 22. When they arrived, so he's already fed. I've jumped around here, so let me give you the context real quickly. He's fed 4,000 people, and they missed it again. Jesus and the disciples, uh, they're getting ready to get on the boat. Before they do, the Pharisees come and they demand a sign. They want something to prove that this man is who he really says he is. Then they get on the boat. First thing Jesus says is, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then they start arguing about this bread. Oh, we, we, we had basketfuls left over. We got on the boat and here we are crossing the sea and we forgot bread. Our bellies are going to be hungry. And they missed the fact that Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the one loaf, was indeed present with them. Now they've come to the other side of the sea, 
When they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus. So, so here, here's what I want you to grasp. So far in Mark chapter eight, it has been about the spiritual blindness of the disciples and of the Pharisees. They have Jesus Christ in their midst, but they are spiritually blind to the truth in front of them. That's what it's been about so far in the first 21 verses of Mark 8. It's all about, and really all the way back to Mark chapter 6, it's been about their blindness, their inability to see, to understand, to have vision, to recognize that Jesus Christ is in their presence and he is who he says he is. But then we get to this very obscure kind of miracle in verse 22. When they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village and then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? Side note real quickly, we saw last week um, some very interesting miracles that are unfolding. And if we don't like people, you know, touching us, um, I certainly don't think we would like people spitting, you know, on our eyes or, or spitting on our fingers and then putting fingers in our ears. We talked about that last week and the miracle of the, uh, of the deaf man. And so some very interesting things here, but I want you to see what Jesus does. He says, can you see anything now? And then the man, what did he do? He looked around, looked around him. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. And Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were open. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. And the healing of a blind man, I want you to hear this this morning, it was not accidentally just placed here in the text for some obscure reason. I believe that this was divinely inspired and divinely placed here for a very specific reason. Because so far we, we see these disciples who have spent a lot of time with Jesus, Pharisees who know the law better than most, and both individuals, even when Jesus, the promised Messiah, is in their midst, they are spiritually blind to the truth in front of them. Their eyes cannot even see. Even though Jesus is physically present, they, they cannot see and they cannot understand Jesus in their midst. And so they get off the boats and there is this blind man that they encounter. And I think here we see that Jesus is communicating a very vital principle. And that is that spiritual sight is possible. We can have spiritual eyes to see what God sees, but it's not possible apart from Jesus. That's what I believe this miracle is indicating. It, it, certainly, we see that, yes, Jesus is our healer, but I think there's something much more deep, deeper than just that. I think what we see here is we, we see a generation of people, disciples and, and Pharisees who are spiritually blind to the truth, and then this miracle occurs, and we see that, yes, spiritual sight is possible for the blind, but it's only possible in the presence of Jesus Christ because it's Jesus that heals here the blind man. Here is what this healing miracle communicates regarding spiritual understanding. Number one, spiritual sight is possible when Jesus is involved. Take notice again what Jesus does. He gets off the boat. They're on the other side in Bethesda. The blind man comes and he is spiritually blind. And so what does he do? Jesus grabs this man by the hand. 
Again, I don't think that's by accident, but what I see here is that, that Jesus is indicating that if healing's going to happen, if spiritual sight is going to take place, it's gonna happen in the presence of Jesus Christ. He grabs his hand and he drags him along or brings him along. Jesus came, we know from scripture, he came for this very purpose, right? We read in, in John chapter nine, Jesus told them, I entered this world to render judgment, to give what sight to the blind? Luke chapter four, when he opens the scroll of Isaiah, what does Jesus read in that scroll? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and the blind will see. Spiritual sight is possible when Jesus is involved. Number two, spiritual sight is gradual and it's not an immediate process. Look, look what happens with the blind man. So, so Jesus takes him by the hand. He spits on the man's eyes and he says to him, can you see? And the man responds by saying, yes, I can see, but, but not clearly. He said, I, I see, but not fully. I see that there are people walking, but they're like trees that are waving about. And so then Jesus touches the man's eyes again and then his sight is fully restored. Folks, spiritual vision, spiritual understanding, again, it's not something that we go to sleep at night and we wake up the next morning and then all of a sudden we have great insight and great understanding. It's a gradual process. And as we submit ourselves to God, as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and his work in us, he will begin to open our eyes so we can see things more clearly. Spiritual sight reaches then its climax when we enter into eternity. Because when we enter into eternity, no longer do we see through a glass dimly, but we will see Jesus as he really is. So on this side of eternity, even if the Holy Spirit gives us greater revelation and greater vision, even still on this side of eternity, our vision is still going to be somewhat blurred. It's a gradual process, but when we meet him face to face, we will then see him as he truly is. Those who are spiritually blind today, and I want you to hear this, they are not without hope. Sight is indeed possible. There may be people that come to mind, people that you know, maybe people that grew up in church, but now for whatever reason, they are much like the, the Pharisees. They know the law. They know the scriptures. They, they know the, the, the rules. They've been in church before, but for whatever reason, they are spiritually blinded to the truth that is right in front of them. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is our savior, that he is the son of God. There's people that we know, and I think that sometimes we think, man, they are too far gone or, or they're too far blinded to the truth, and I'm not certain they will ever understand. This is a reminder this morning that those who are blinded to the truth, sight is still possible. There is still hope. We need to continue to pray and intercede on their behalf that their eyes would be open to see as God sees. Finally, number three, then, what's the pathway how does spiritual sight come? It comes when we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. It's not part of our text today. We'll look at it clearly in the next few weeks. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is walking with his disciples and he's asking them, asking them this question, who do people say that I am? Disciples are saying things like, well, some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say this and that. And and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? 
Keep in mind, this is the same group of people that witnessed two incredible miracles and missed the very fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in their very midst. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. That was revelation that was given to Peter Peter didn't just wake up that morning and then all of a sudden he had this great spiritual insight. It was given to him by God. His eyes were being gradually opened to the truth. And here's the reality. As the disciples continue to walk with Jesus, so though they were spiritually blind, their, their vision was getting clearer and clearer as they spent more time with Jesus. When they get to the cross, uh, again, they're still blinded to the truth, but then there's the resurrection and then there's the ascension and then all of a sudden you have these same disciples that are now going and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Their spiritual sight was gradually given to them. Paul makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings light to our eyes. Almost done this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, and I'm reading this from the Amplified Version because it gives us insight into the truth of this word. Listen to the word, uh, words of Paul, and I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very center and core of your being, may be enlightened. How? Or what does that look like? Flooded with light by the Holy Spirit. Folks, spiritual understanding comes when Christ is present takes the blind man by the hand and he guides him and begins to touch him and heal him. And spiritual understanding comes when we submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's the Holy Spirit that's gonna give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand his truth. I wanna end with this and worship team, if you wanna come, there's this, somewhat obscure text in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's the story of Elisha. I'm just going to read a couple verses to you. Israel is up against um, the army of Aram. One of the servants of Elisha is trying to gain perspective on the battlefront. 2 Kings chapter 6 says, when the servant of the man of God, speaking the man of God being Elisha, when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and he went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. So, so the servant of Elisha, he gets up and he goes and he looks and all around him, they are surrounded by, by troops, by an army, by horses and chariots and he says to Elisha, oh, sir, what will we do now? He was concerned, fearful, because what he saw with his physical eyes was here very soon, they were going to be defeated. He saw defeat. He saw harm in their very new, near future with his physical eyes. Listen to what Elisha then says in verse 16. He says, don't be afraid. For there are more on our side than on theirs. And then listen to what Elisha does. Elisha prays. He prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And then the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. 
With his physical eyes, when he looked around him, he saw defeat. Because he saw defeat, he was concerned for his very life. But as soon as Elisha prayed to the Lord, Lord, open this man's eyes, not to see just physically around him, but to see that I am on your side. He prayed and his eyes were opened. And he saw that there were actually more on the side of Elisha and Israel than there were the side of Aram. What's interesting is, I'll read one more verse, verse 18. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed this. He said, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Would you stand with me this morning? One more story I'm going to read here in just a second. But I want you to grasp this this morning. If you've missed anything else that I've said or caught a few things this morning, I want you to understand this this morning. Maybe you can really connect today with the servant of the man of Elisha. And if you begin to look at your present circumstances, wherever you are at right now, your present situation, whatever's going on in your life, in your home, in your relationships, at work, or whatever it may be, and you start to, to view them from a very human, physical perspective, you, you may resonate with that servant and say, this is too much. I can't handle this. I can't deal with this. This is too much for me to handle and there's no way that I'm going to come out on the side of victory. As I look at my circumstances, as I look at my life, as I look at my, my choices, my decisions, and whatever I've done or not done, I, I see nothing but defeat. That's the response of somebody who is spiritually blind to the truth of God's word. I just want to just simply encourage you this morning. Let's, let's recognize if we truly are spiritually blind, let's recognize it and let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what God sees. To see that, that defeat is not in my future, but victory indeed is. To be reminded that, that the battle that we face, we aren't facing alone battle's already been won by Christ and he is with us. There's incredible danger when we close our eyes and our ears and our heart to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And I want to end with this story. Jesus is clear that it is dangerous to close one's ears, eyes, and heart to the leadings of the Holy Spirit. And The Magician's Nephew, it's a novel of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. Narnia is created when Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, sings it into being. Creation song reveals Aslan's majesty and glory. It is a grand call to worship, but there is one, Uncle Andrew, who refuses to hear it. And the consequences are staggering. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing long ago, when it was still quiet, dark, he had realized that the noise was a song and he had disliked the song very much made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and 
he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, as he said to himself. He tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as a lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, if can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? The longer and more beautiful, beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could never, that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you are very often, you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bangs, and howls. Let's not miss and close our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As a church, I'm praying that God would continue to give us his eternal perspective to see as he sees. Would you-